views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and frickin' agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the September 26, 2018 live broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. Tonight, we'll be going deep into felony disenfranchisement laws and its history. From Greece's civil death codes to the black codes after the Civil War, from civil rights movements till now. I peeped the lawyers, the slavers game, and be research, been researching all week, and y'all know how I can get it when I get my teeth into something. So I look for things other people might not be able to see because they don't look at it from the perspective of an abolitionist. If you have a background in this issue and something to add or you just want to learn out loud with us today, join in later in the conversation. On and near this day in history, on September 29, 1975, on Channel 62 in Detroit, Michigan, the very first television station in the United States owned and operated by African Americans began broadcasting. Founded by William Benoit Banks, it was Banks' vision that WGPR-TV provide African Americans with crucial training and experience in the television industry, allowing many local blacks the opportunity to work behind the camera in producing, directing, and other roles which played content on air. The station ran until 1995. In Direct Action News, the Right to Vote campaign still needs your support. It's a nationwide <clears throat> campaign being initiated by people currently confined in the United States. This campaign grew out of the August 21st National Prison Strike Demand, specifically point number 10. The voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pre-trial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. Then also remember to vote Amendment A in Colorado to remove the exception clause to slavery from the state constitution. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is William Lloyd Garrison. 
1831, Garrison published the first edition of The Liberator. His words, quote-unquote, I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard, clarified the position of the new abolitionists. Garrison was not interested in compromise. A writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad today, Valentino Dixon. Mr. Dixon, 48, had maintained his innocence during 27 years behind bars for a shooting in Buffalo, New York. He walked free this month after another man formally confessed to the murder. As always, we have a little time and a lot to cover, so be sure to follow the information we provide on our Facebook page at New Abolitionist Radio so you can see the information in real time as we talk about the issues. Also, remember to support our efforts by joining us as a member at community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. We need your help and support to continue. You'll find the links for today's program on our abolitionist page, which is available to BTR community members. And if you've got a question or a comment, you can call in tonight at 704-802-5056. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Parkers. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, I'm doing the best I can, Max. How about you? I've seen better days, man. You can see my, hear it in my voice. I've been dragging these past few weeks, but still... Moving on as best as possible, man. And I've been doing a lot of research all this week, and it's really taught me a lot more, you know, amazing things that I've been studying with this uh, felony disenfranchisement laws. Like, some of the stuff outright amazing. Yeah. Um, so I'm very looking forward to what you uncovered. But before we get started, I don't know if you can remember this person's name, but on a program last night, foundational radio um they were we were discussing code switching um and and how it relates to how you deal with slave catchers and whatnot and you know the whole general conversation about code switching how how we'll talk a certain way when we're among friends but then when we're depending upon the setting we'll you know change the way we speak and the words that we use and that's come to be known as code switching and it came to my mind of one of our abolitionists in profile, and I mistakenly said Frederick Douglass, but I corrected myself later, and I was like, no, it wasn't Frederick Douglass, I don't think. But but you had picked an abolitionist in profile who used to pass as a sailor. He was an escaped victim of, of slavery, and, and he passed as a slaver. Was his name? Yes. That was Frederick Douglass. That was how he escaped. That was Frederick. Oh, okay. So I, I guess I was, my memory wasn't failing me last night, but I wasn't sure. But um, I felt like, yeah, you know, that's an example of our of one of our ancestors code switching. He he learned the vernacular of sailors and depending upon the company he was on in uh, to make them think that he was a, a, a sailor too and not an escaped victim of slavery uh, he would talk like that. Yep, that was Frederick Douglass, absolutely. He, we just celebrated his uh, escape from slavery, just, not only his, but also Harriet Tubman's was last week, uh, both of who recently escaped from slavery, well, in the same period, uh, not in the same year, just in the same date. Well, let's jump into it, Max. Where do you want to start? 
Oh, uh, absolutely. There was something I did want to start with, and I'm expecting a phone call from a friend after nine o'clock tonight. Uh, I'll find out what the area code is so you can have a heads up. But I want people to understand what it is we're talking about here. And you know, one of the uh, well, people call him one of the greatest thinkers of our time is Noam Chomsky. And there's a video that I linked in the chat room, Scotty. It's only a couple minutes long. I would like our listeners to hear what he said about what we're dealing with right now. Okay, give me a second as I pull that up. It should be starting here momentarily. Here we go. I just read uh, a couple of weeks ago one of the most horrifying books I've ever read by Douglas Blackman uh, called, I think, Slavery by Another Name. It's a, the first detailed discussion. I mean, I sort of knew the general story, but the first really detailed discussion of what happened after Reconstruction. So, you know, there was a little period after the Civil War when blacks were allowed to vote, to cut representation, and things seemed to be looking up a little bit. But then Reconstruction ended in 1877. And then uh, in the South, but with the cooperation of the North, so it's joint, they reinstituted a system which was much worse than slavery. Worse than slavery. Uh, it was basically incarceration of the black population uh, under a system of laws which essentially criminalized black life, vagrancy, you know, talking too loud or looking at a white woman or whatever it may be. They pick people up, toss them in prison, they stay there for life, uh, and, and they, that's what created that's what the created Industrial Revolution. You know, steel and so on and so forth, mines, uh, hideous conditions, much worse than slavery, for good reasons. I mean, slave owners, their slaves were capital, you know, they had to sort of take care of them. But here, it's nothing. You just ran them from the prisons. And it, it, the descriptions are horrifying. It went right up to the Second World War. Uh, after the Second World War, during and after the Second World War, there was a brief change. There was an expanding economy, there was a need for, you know, uh, 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 labor, skilled labor. So there was a kind of an opening for African-American men. They could go into the auto industry, you know, maybe get a decent home or something like that. Around the night, around the, the book doesn't go into this, but if you think about it, that period ended in the 1970s when the country moved towards a kind of financialization, you know, deindustrialization, de financialization. There's nothing left for what amounted to poor immigrants. Like, you know, when my father was an immigrant in the early part of the 20th century, there was an expanding economy. He could work in a sweatshop and you know, end up with his kid going to college and so on. Uh, that's now closed, and what's happening instead is that the blacks are being thrown into jail again. The incarceration rate, as I'm sure you know, has gone up from around 1980, just skyrocketed way beyond any other country and, and uh, having nothing to do with crime, to do with crime rates. So what you, if you look at the whole history, there's slavery, there's post-reconstruction, worse than slavery, worse than slavery. There's, a, there's a second world war, a little window, which was not beautiful, but at least it was something, and then back into slavery uh, and prison labor and so on. That's the history of blacks in America. For centuries, for centuries, and so centuries. It is well. You know, it's unfortunate that the Harvard professor got arrested. But to just compare the two cases. How much is there about this? And suddenly, this book was by a Wall Street Journal reporter. But it's not. Uh, but the whole picture and what it means is gone. And 
the picture is now different. It's the beer party today. There's a black president. It's all over. You know, we've gotten to a post-racial society. Have we? I mean, take a look at the history of the, the present situation. At the closing down of the auto industries, which is what's happening, it's essentially uh, driving back the closing, the brief window. It's one piece of what's closing the brief window for most of the a black population. I mean, there's a there's an opening for Condoleezza Rice, Condoleezza Rice, Barack Obama, and Barack Obama, black middle class. Black they're always black. They're always black. Well, that's it, Scotty. Um, that was Noam Chomsky on modern day slavery and uh, what he uh, thought about convict leasing. And you heard him say that. The circumstances after slavery alleged, allegedly ended was much worse than slavery itself. And we've seen examples of that unearthed recently in Sugarland, Texas, where mass graves of convict leased prisoners were found who were seen as disposable. Uh, there is literally a book titled, One Dies, Get Another. And that's how they looked at these uh, people who they had picked up off the streets for vagrancy laws and all these different criminalized uh, li uh, litigation that they had and put them into these prisons and then leased them out to the iron companies and to the coal companies and the mining companies and uh, back to the plantations where they were just slaves at two years before. Worse than slavery. Yeah, I, I mean, I've said it before that uh, pre-American Civil War slavery was was um that no i'm sorry let me restate that that post-american civil war slavery was worse than pre-american civil war slavery because as he pointed out that was they were looked at as pro property beforehand you don't you don't want to you know waste your money by injuring your victims of slavery to the point they can't even work and produce more wealth for you no, no, you, you're going to, you know, at least make sure that they don't starve to death. You're going to make sure that they have, you know, minimum clothing and, and what have you. But, you know, you, were, you weren't going to just outright kill them, you know, because that's an investment. You invested in that. But afterwards, um, you know, during the convict leasing period, like he said, you just get another one. You just snatch one off the street. Um, you know, with these black codes and what have you, which again uh, is just a nickname for laws that were being selectively applied to the recently emancipated uh, victims of slavery and the free black people. And, you know, we still see this going on today. Um, sure, we got white people that's in prison, uh, po uh, particularly poor whites who are in prison, but by and far, uh, most of the selective targeting is aimed at black communities and other non-white uh, communities who make up the biggest uh, portion of today's uh, victims of modern-day slavery through the prison. So, I mean, it's just logical what he said. I mean, it's historical. It's just fact. Uh, indeed, Scotty. Hey, before I go any further, I need to ask for some assistance from Brother Otis Griffin. I see that he's listening in. For some reason, I'm unable to directly post on our new abolitionist uh, radio page in order to share the articles that we're talking about. Otis, if you could do that for me while we discuss them, I would appreciate it. 
Everything is on our planning page or in the uh, This Week News and Legalized Slavery page, either there or the other. You can find it. So thank you. Peace. I see you said it, no doubt. Thanks, Otis. Uh, he said that there was a period of time, Noam Chomsky said, that there was this brief period uh, where we had kind of a relative freedom or relative peace, very small window. When most people talk about their window, it really doesn't go beyond 30 years. Uh, it happened basically, I guess, when the end of the civil rights movement uh, happened and a lot of these uh, you know, civil rights laws came into place in 1964 and the uh, populace became uh, sympathetic to the cause of African Americans here in the United States. So for a while, it looked like people were doing good. Factories were here, like where I come from in Patterson, in Silk City. They were the first industrialized city here in the United States. And that's why they were called Silk City, because that's what they did. And then later on, they started bringing in the dye factories and all these different jobs that people took, because that's all that was available to us. And then when they sent them overseas to uh, get slave labor there, where people were working for pennies on the dollar in Mexico and in Asia, when they left that, it was a big sucking sound. <laughs> and and the, the thing that replaced it was abject poverty, followed by criminalization, followed by for-profit jails and prisons. Yeah, so I don't have any. Scotty, what do you think? I, I don't have anything to add. So yeah, man, like, like we go through four hundred years of slavery to get thirty years of relative freedom. That is crazy, and then go right back into slavery. I, I forget about who was. There was a quote by E. B. Du Bois about that little brief period. Well, uh, somebody can share with us later. I I do have something to say about that. Um. There was, you know, like the Harlem Renaissance and, and all of that, and that was that was before. I I don't I don't buy into that, Max. I don't buy that we had a brief period of freedom. We there has always been constant terrorism, uh, racism, and was a small percentage able to you know uh, gather some wealth. I, I I would say if I would say there was a goal, I. I, I got to be careful with my words here. If I was to say there was a, a prosperous period, I would say that would be during World War One and World War Two, where there was a demand for for black labor, and they had yet not, you know, replaced black labor with all those immigrants like Noam Chomsky's father. And what have you, you know, you had different periods of European immigration and, you know, you also had African-Americans who were complaining about all this cheap labor being brought in to replace them. But I think the highest period of employment and prosperity were doing those those two particular wars where you kind of had mass employment. That's why you had a lot of mass um, migration from the south to the north to, you know, work in, in, in the factories for the war machine and what have you. But still, though, still constant terrorism, constant lynching, and, you know, even during the civil rights period and, and, and so-called thereafter, um, COINTELPRO, we still got political prisoners in, in, in prison today, 80-year-old men like Sundiata, Sundiata Akoli, uh, Mamiya Abu Jamal, uh, many, many, many others. So I, I, I you know, I, I hesitate to say we've ever had any kind of golden age. You know, uh, we did have some periods of 
prosperity, but you know, I guess freedom is object is subjective. <laughs> I remember because I was a kid when all of that was going on, when this alleged moment of uh, some kind of relative uh, prosperity or freedom came along, and like I said, I was living in the industrial cities that were losing had gotten those jobs and then eventually lost them. And I remember that my great uncle who raised me along with my great aunt, he worked for like 25 years at Willowbrook Mall in Wayne, New Jersey. Almost 30 years there he worked there. And mm -hmm. more often than not, he would train white people to, re to be his boss. He must have done that a mm -hmm. dozen times. They would never promote him and they always kept him in this condition where he, for 20, almost 30 years, he worked as a fucking janitor, excuse me, as a janitor. And that was a job to him, a good job. People respected him because he was making decent money working as a janitor at Willowbrook Mall. And that's the type of prosperity that they think we have. And, you know, also we can't forget that the labor un uh, labor movement, when, you know, the unions started really organizing, they were racist as well, man. They didn't want to allow black black workers and to be in the union and what have you. So... I would say that for a very uh, a small percentage, I can't put an exact number on it, but um, yeah, lots of people, man. Like, like for example, when I hear people who had this alternative black history, um, and these are black people too, who say, "Hey, before before uh, integration, we had everything you needed." I was like, "You ain't never watched them videos of Dr. King's poverty tour." when he was touring the South and the South and, and seeing all them black people in abject poverty. I mean, he was, I remember him interviewing one woman who said, you know, we have beans for breakfast, dinner, and supper. I mean, yeah, I mean, for breakfast, lunch, and supper, because that's all we can afford. And it's just so bad. It's terrible. No, I I, I, I cannot find um, in, in accurate his, historical record where we had this so-called golden period. Again, yeah, we had a few. We had the Madam C.J. Walkers and, and what have you. We had, I can't think of his real name, uh, but the real McCoy. Um, that's where the term comes from, this black inventor. We had the Booker T. Washingtons and what. We had a few people who were, you know, successful and, and you know, were able to make some money and what. But that wasn't the reality for the vast majority of the millions of uh, yeah. and it, descendants of, of of victims of slavery and um, you know um, um, segregation, and it, it was a, a matter of opinion and perspective. Really, it depends on from what position you were looking at this at, you know, and what you had. Because as I said to us, we didn't have nothing. I stood on cheese lines, man. The government cheese lines. I stood on those lines and got that cheese and ate that cheese and loved that. Hey, cheese. hey, don't you remember the powder eggs? I remember those from the days in Detroit in the seventies, man. You know, I, I ain't ashamed. You know, my mom was was working. Um, and my stepdad was working, but still needed, you know, assistance. And I remember them powder eggs and the powder milk and, and what have you. Yes. Hey, Scotty, before we go into the main stories today, uh, I wanted to uh, give a, a couple of pieces of information out of uh, things that are happening right now. One is the College of Charleston has created a center for the study of slavery in Charleston. Uh, I think it's pretty big, and I can't wait to visit and speak with the people there. 
said the College of Charleston announced Monday, September 24, 2018, the institution's creation of the Center for the Study of Slavery in Charleston. Though scholarly research and public programming, the new center will examine the impact of slavery and race-related issues in the city of Charleston, including the surrounding region, and at the College of Charleston from the late 18th century through the Civil Rights era and the continued impact and legacy of slavery in the present. The center will build on the work begun with the College of Charleston's affiliation with over 40 other universities in the University's Studying Slavery Consortium, an effort organized by the University of Virginia. I think that's awesome, Scotty, because once you start looking, you're going to find things. You know what I mean? If you ain't looking, you ain't going to find it, unless by mistake, but they're looking now. You know, Max, I... I tell you, man, I have gained so much knowledge since um, you and I uh, started on this venture together, you know, called New Abolitionist Radio and all the research um, that we both have done. And I just really would not, I don't think I would have ever came across this information if we didn't start researching slavery, you know? So, I mean, and, and we still from time to time will find new stories and and new things and, and able to present it and how it relates to what, you know, this new modern era of, of legalized slavery via the 13th Amendment. So, so yeah, man. Um, but like you said, though, you know, um, it just depends on how it's going to be presented. Are you going to be presenting um, as if slavery has been abolished or are you going to talk about the different periods of slavery and how it was transformed and what have you and how it impacts us today. I'm hoping to have some say in some of that. You know, what I have a strong connection with Charleston, South Carolina, and I've been working with the people there for over 15 years. And uh, on occasion, I've been blessed to be able to speak at the Avery Institute for African American History and give lectures on the 13th Amendment there. And they started moving their... Uh, studies towards that as well. You remember I talked about it some years ago here on the program. So I'm hoping to be able to go down again and speak to the educators there and maybe get them to focus some of their efforts on this particular issue. Well, the other one, uh, Scotty, is a book which I just got yesterday. Uh, it's available now, and it's called The Last Slave Ship Survivor Gave an Interview in the 1930s, and it just surfaced. It's Zora Neale Hurston's searing book about the final survivor of the transatlantic slave trade, Cujo Lewis, is being published nearly a century after it was written. So there's this interview with the last person to get off a slave ship and live to survive it. And uh, we just got it yesterday, so I'm looking forward to reading that in his own words. Max, you there? Yes. That was all I had to say about that. Okay. Anything anything to add to it, Scotty? Oh, uh, no, sir. All right, well, let's get into it. What we're going to be doing right now is what I like to call learning out loud. You know, I'm always trying to learn, like Scotty just said, finding new things all the time looking into this issue. And we, uh, for the past week, I've been focusing on uh, the felony disenfranchisement policy. So let me start with what I've learned so far. And, Scotty, stop me when you want to comment on something, okay? Yes, sir. 
Felony disenfranchisement policies have a disproportionate impact on communities of color. Black Americans of voting age are more than four times more likely to lose their voting rights than the rest of the adult population, with one of every 13 black adults disenfranchised nationally. Wow. One in 13 black people are disenfranchised nationally. As of 2016, in four states, Florida, 21%, Kentucky, 26%, Tennessee, 21%, and Virginia, 22%, more than one in five black adults were disenfranchised. In total, 2.2 million black citizens are banned from voting. Many states instituted felony disenfranchisement policies in the wake of the Civil War. And by 1869, 29 states had enacted such laws. Ward Elliott argues that the elimination of the property test as a voting qualification may help to explain the popularity of felony disenfranchisement policies, as they served as an alternative means for wealthy elites to constrict the political power of the lower classes. In the post-Reconstruction period, several, uh, several southern states tailored their disenfranchisement laws in order to bar black male voters, targeting those offenses believed to be committed most frequently by the black population. For example, party leaders in Mississippi called the disenfranchisement for offenses such as burglary, theft, and arson, but not for robbery or murder. The author of Alabama's disenfranchisement provision estimated the crime of wife beating alone would disqualify 60% of the Negroes, resulting in a policy that would disenfranchise a man for beating his wife, but not for killing her. Such policies would endure for over a century. While it is debatable whether felony disenfranchisement laws today are intended to reduce the political clout of communities of color, this is their undeniable effect. History of felony disenfranchisement in the United States English colonists brought to North America the common law practice of civil death, a set of criminal penalties that included the revocation of voting rights. Early colonial law limited the penalty of disenfranchisement to certain offenses related to voting or considered egregious violations of the moral code. After the American Revolution, states began codifying disenfranchisement provisions and expanding the penalty to all felony offenses. Many states instituted felony disenfranchisement policies in the wake of the Civil War, and by 1869, as I said earlier, 29 states had enacted these laws. So I was reading about the legal status, and it says this, disenfranchisement policies have met occasional legal challenges in the last century. In Richard v. Ramirez, 418 U.S. 24, 1974, three men from California who had served time for felony convictions sued for their right to vote, arguing that the state's felony disenfranchisement policies denied them the right to equal protection of the laws under the U.S. Constitution. Can, can you read that again? Can you read that section again? Because I just asked this question the other day. Can you read okay. uh, on, on BTR News? Read that section again. It says uh, this is under legal status. Disenfranchisement policies have met occasional legal challenges in the last century. In Richardson v. Ramirez, 418 U.S. 24, 1974, three men from California who had served time for felony convictions sued for their right to vote, arguing the state's 
felony disenfranchisement policy denied them the right of equal protection of the laws under the U.S. Constitution under Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. A state cannot restrict voting rights unless it shows a compelling state interest. Nevertheless, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld California's felony disenfranchisement policies as constitutional finding that Section 2 of the 14th Amendment allowed the denial of voting rights for participation in rebellion or other crime. Oh, my God, man. Now, see, that say, see, I had asked this question on BTR News. I said, it, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I, got, I can read, I can comprehend what I'm reading, and if you use an objective application, I, was, I said that, Considering that you have all these different states with different laws, for example, Florida, while they have a process for your voting rights to be restored, they stonewall it and it may take years. It may take a lot of money and what have you. But here in North Carolina, once you get out and complete your probation, your rights to vote are automatically restored. And so you got all these different uh, um, um um, laws concerning voting in different states. I was like, it seems to me that somebody would apply for, uh, would file a lawsuit using the 14th Amendment. Hey, this is not equal across the United States. The federal government is your job to provide equal protection. Now, that section two of, of the 14th Amendment was written with Confederates in, in, in former Confederates in mind. Not, you know what I'm saying? Let me pull it up right quick, Max. Uh, 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment. For participation in rebellion or other crime. That's what the Supreme Court Okay, said. Section 2. Section 2, 14th Amendment. Rep- representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, ex- excluding Indians who are not taxed. But when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for president and vice president of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state or the members of the legislature thereof is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States or in or are or in any way abridged except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in a proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. Now, that's kind, that's kind of confusing, uh, that last uh, uh, paragraph that I just read. I, I really don't understand that. And I kind of missed that or other crime or other crime. <sighs> yeah, it's the okie doke that uh, Vermont played in their constitution where they said that you can be uh, enslaved in the state of Vermont in their constitution for crimes of debt or the like. So or the like is this broad statement that could mean anything. But when you're reading it, you're supposed to take into account the first thing that they mentioned. So they say for participation in rebellion. Now, or other crime would mean treason, 
would mean anything where you're assisting the enemy to fight the United States. It doesn't mean you pickpocketed somebody. It does, it's not for purse snatching. It's not for car theft. It's for rebellion uh, crimes against the nation itself. Now, I, I have some other questions. Now, what year was this lawsuit filed, Ramirez versus... Uh, Cal- what? 1974. Okay. Now, I wonder what they would have said uh, if it had been a female, a woman. Now, this this right here, right here, you would think that that would be invalidated. Yeah, we do need a, a constitutional convention because that's a very that that right there is in violation of the federal laws that uh, prohibit discrimination based on gender, you know, or sex, not gender, it's sex. That's the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, Max, this is what I said not that long ago on BTR News. This country is a ball of confusion. There's no consistency whatsoever. They just do whatever, interpret whatever, however they want to. Man, I tell you, man, uh, Anytime you see unless, accept, otherwise, you know it's a hustle about to come up yeah. within itself. <laughs> or other crime. What What is other crime? Exactly. It's a blanket statement that they can apply to anything as they see fit. And at least that's the way they're doing it. But by intention, you read the first thing it says is in rebellion or other crime. I mean, any other crime associated with a rebellion. <laughs> Yeah, and and you would think this would be invalidated because it's talking about male citizens. Let me read to you what Justice Rehnquist said. In the majority opinion, Justice Rehnquist found that Section 2, which was arguably intended to protect the voting rights of freed slaves by sanctioning states that disenfranchise them, exempts from sanction disenfranchisement based on felony conviction. By this logic... The Equal Protection Clause in the previous section could not have been intended to prohibit such disenfranchisement policies. So he's basically saying, and, and, and you know, kind of summing it up is that this was literally being used uh, against what it was intended to be used for. It was intended to protect the rights of freed slaves who were supposed to be able to vote, and then they would penalize states who would disenfranchise such freed slaves like Florida and South Carolina and Georgia. And uh, then he said that, nonetheless, they're still using it by the same logic. Now, I would also argue that for the purposes of the census, if you strip someone of their voting rights, then they shouldn't be counted in the census, period. But again, you know, we know that prisoners are counted towards the areas where they are warehoused on a prison plantation and not their address or their family's address where they were when they were uh, taken, you know, by the slave catchers, the police or whatever. Right, right. So we're seeing now where this is being misapplied by using another loophole (laughs) or other crimes. You know, lawyers and loopholes, man, they'll exploit it every damn time. Here's some of the other information I've found. And I just want to mention that you can find all of this thanks to uh, Otis Brother Otis Griffin on New Abolitionist Radio, where you can read it in its entirety. 
this what I just read came from felony disenfranchisement, a primer, the sentencing project. Uh, and here's a little bit more information. This disenfranchisement affects an estimated one in 40 adult Americans or 2.5% of the total voting age population. I gotta stop there because that is a logical fallacy. It is a fallacy of the averages where they're saying one in 40 adult Americans. Well, if you take all the people in the country, yes, that's one in 40 adult Americans. But it water down, waters down the idea that in some specific communities, it is far worse than one in 40. So I just wanted to get that out of there, out there. Yeah, and then it's talking about, and isn't the legal age to vote now 18? Uh, I can't say with any certainty. It is. Uh, It's 18. That's when I voted, when I first registered to vote, when I was 18. When I first voted too, yes. Yeah, well, 18, but in here it's talking about 21 years of age. Right. They say that the number, Scotty, and this is a matter of perspective, and, and this is something that everybody should envision in their mind. The number of people who are disenfranchised from voting is greater than the entire population of Missouri. And it's the largest single group of American citizens who are barred by law from participating in elections. They said Missouri, but it's also larger than my home state of New Jersey. I I think I remember they said if uh, the prison population by itself was put out as a state, it would be the third largest state in the country. And now we're talking about these people who are not only disenfranchised inside, but those who, for the rest of their life, were disenfranchised, came out not being able to vote, died not being able to vote, barred from voting. And we're not talking about a few people. In states like Florida, it's nearly a quarter of the population. So what's some solutions to this outside of a um, constitutional convention to change this and the 13th Amendment? And who knows, if we do some more digging, we might find some more loopholes and nonsense and what have you, but I think that the easier, and when I say easier, I don't mean it's going to be easy, but it's to try to affect change through the state legislature, to the state constitution, and and what have you. Well, to answer your question, Scotty, that's something we've been saying every uh, program now for a few months, and that is about uh, uh, point number 10, from the uh, strike demands, the voting rights of all confined citizens. Well, you can go to, if you're listening, you can go to S-A-W-A-R-I-M-I, sawarimi.org, slash, right, dash, two, dash, vote, dash, campaign. And you can find out how you can help right there, because as you said, Scotty, they're fighting it state by state right now. And they're getting a lot of support, particularly in Florida, which is one of the worst offenders in the entire country. Yeah, and one more thing to to that um, is, well, man, I just lost my train of thought. I'm sitting here reading this, man. and um, But, yeah, the state-by-state approach. But, again, Max, we got the people who are involved in that work and, and other people of good conscience and good faith abolitionists as well you know we we have to be a part of this constitutional convention that's coming up and it's going to happen man what are they down to just needing two more states one more state where is that at now it's going to happen 
heard they were one state away, Scotty. It's going to happen. And instead of me looking at it fearfully, of course there's a lot to, to fear if of only right-wingers and, and rich people is going to be in control of this like the Koch brothers or whatnot. But if we had organized representation to be in on that, then it we could write a whole lot of wrongs that's in the Constitution. You know, that's one of those things, Scotty, where I don't have too much hope left. You know, when I started ringing the bell about this a couple of years ago, we might have had a chance. If some, if we had got these legislators to get in position to be a part of this conversation. But nobody listened to us, Scotty. Nobody seemed well, to listen to us. Well, Max. One but, state away. They well, Max. This next year or this year. Now, yes, now, I imagine, though, that though that perhaps you have to be legis- uh, uh, elected state representative to even be a part of a constitutional convention. Of course, we yeah. know the lobbyists is behind the scenes. But see, this is why voting is important. I, it, it just bugs me, man, when I say people, when I hear people talk about voting don't matter and all this. Man, if it didn't matter, why they go through all of this as we're reading even here? Why did they go through all of this to strip people of their voting rights? But this upcoming 2018 election, and Lord knows I don't have any kind of um, favorable view of Democrats or whatnot, but they would represent our best chance. And I'm talking state. I'm talking state in, in having a voice at this constitutional convention. This is something we need our listeners to reach out to their legislators about. Do you know about the Convention of States? It's found at conventionofstates.org. They're only one state away from opening up the Constitution for reinterpretation, and we need representation. You can write that letter to your legislators. No, not, Max, not reinterpretation, rewriting it. Because some of them have talked about eliminating amendments. Right. They can do anything. That's why the term runaway convention uh, came into meaning, because of uh, something like this, where it could just go crazy. Like, you could end up legalizing slavery, period. Like, they could say slavery is legal. How are you going to stop them? These are the legislators writing the Constitution. And again, this is a nation of laws. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And as we all know, those who violate the Constitution don't get any punishment whatsoever. Yeah, and, and a couple of more points again as I, I, I keep staring at this. This section 2 of the 14th Amendment was, was written strictly applying to males because women had not yet got suffrage. So in light of that 1972 uh, Supreme Court decision, I would implore some women victims of modern day slavery who've, who've been disenfranchised to, to, to uh, um, file a lawsuit. Because if they're going to use Section 2 where they can say, hell, I'm not a male, so that don't apply to me. I don't know. I'm spitballing here, Max. I, man, I, I, I just become more appalled the more I learn about this country, man. There was a put out there and you say why would they disenfranchise people like this but that's kind of almost obvious answer 
if you remember back in the early 1800s, or the late 1800s, I'm sorry, 1870s, uh, 1868, when the KKK was born, here in South Carolina, 50% of the legislators were black. 50% of them were black. I got a photo I'm looking at right now. Right, Half of the right. legislators are black. Right. And the reason that the KKK came into being, one of the reasons was to stop that. They didn't want black people to have any kind of control in this nation. They want to keep right. white supremacy going. So it went from 50% black down to one black legislator in just a couple of short years. Right. And they don't want to control anything about this country. Right, right. In in just five years, you know, black males got the right to vote because of the veterans of the Civil War who are, and I'm talking specifically the black veterans, but, you know, I, I don't want to leave anyone out. But if those black people did not join the war effort, we'd be living in the Confederate States of America today, you know? And they demanded five years after the Civil War, they kept lobbying and pushing and demanding the right to vote. And they finally got it leading to what you just talked about. You know, uh, a lot of uh, um, elected uh, uh, black people holding elected office. But one last thing on this section, as I'm, I'm looking at this or of the crime was to stop was to stop them from disenfranchising you for a misdemeanor because it don't differentiate between misdemeanor or felonies. It just say other crime. Yet other crimes, the loophole, except otherwise, unless other, <laughs> if it starts with other, you know there's going to be a problem. The research shows it. <laughs> hey, and you know that pretty yeah. Scotty? No, I was just going to say, you know, hey, you you got a you got a, a misdemeanor conviction for driving without you know license or hey you're disenfranchised you can't vote. There's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that would stop a state from passing such a law. In that uh, photo that I was talking to you about that I'm looking at in the article from FacingHistory.org, uh, I believe Otis probably shared it so people can see. It says laws passed during Reconstruction especially the 14th and 15th Amendment, significantly expanded the scope of American citizenship and extended political rights to millions of black Americans. In 1868, South Carolina had the first state legislature with a black majority. This image includes 63 of the legislators' members, and it was distributed throughout the South Carolina by opponents of radical reconstruction. Now, Max... Correct me if I'm wrong. Let, let me, can I read section three? Yes. Okay. This is what section three says. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, but Congress shall, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such a disability. Now, I don't know if that vote of two-thirds happened that restored these Confederates back to Congress, which then gave them an ability to have a say 
in these amendments, specifically the 13th Amendment, which continues slavery. Yeah. And you heard it in there where they clarified what the crimes were. <laughs> the other crimes, what they were in Section 3. <sighs> All right, Scotty. Uh, unless you want to add more, I'll go ahead to the no, next part of it. No, go ahead. All right, so this is the second, uh, well, not second, but like the third one that I've read from, and this is from businessinsider.com. And it says, an estimated 6.1 million American adults were not allowed to vote in the 2016 election because they had a felony conviction on the record. Most had already served their sentences and returned to their communities. The majority of U.S. states take away felon voting rights occasionally for life. This disenfranchisement affects an estimated one in 40 adult Americans. We read that part again. Uh, according to the Census Project, a group that advocates criminal justice reform. The number is greater than the entire population of Missouri, and it's the largest single group of American citizens who are barred by law from participating in elections. So many people are barred from the polls that some worry their absence could change election results. One study even suggested that allowing felons to vote in Florida could have tipped the 2000 presidential election tag. Democrat Al Gore. About half of U.S. states have loosened restrictions in recent years, but how this might affect the country's fractured politics is more complicated. Would ex-felons turn out to vote? And if they would, can we predict who'd benefit? And they say the U.S. is a huge outlier liar when it comes to incarceration. The U.S. has one of the highest. See, they, they always got to change things. It's not one of. It is the highest incarceration rate in the world with about 670 inmates per 100,000 residents, according to figures from International Center for Prison Studies. Some estimates put that figure much higher. The rate is about five times the average of other developed economies in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. The next closest uh, OECD state is Israel, which has an incarceration rate of about 250 inmates per 100,000. And so the next worst <laughs> offender in the whole world is Israel. And we can imagine who those prisoners are. The majority of those prisoners are. Yeah, they go on further, Scotty, to say the rate for U.S. residents age 18 and up rose from about 310 per 100,000 in 80 to about 870 per 100,000 in 2015. A spike correlated with the war on drugs era tough on crime policy. The rate peaked in the mid-2000s at about 1,000 per 100,000. Now, that information right there, we can trace who did it and why they did it and how they did it. Because we were witness to this. We talked about this so many times on New Abolitionist Radio, particularly when you're talking about in 2000, you're talking about the Clinton crime bills at that time. That's what you're talking about, that omnibus bill with Biden and Clinton signing on to it, as well as many other senators. So that was the reason for the peak there. So with the peak in the incarceration rate, you also get a peak in people who can't vote. I mean, it, it, they go together like hand in glove. Right, deliberate. It, it's a deliberate plan. So it's, you know, it's a twofer for them, among other things. You know, Not only do they get a perfect system of race and class control, but they also take away your rights to participate as a citizen, which you have described as some form of hybrid slave slash citizen. Right. 
And again, reading, um, you know, going back to the 14th Amendment, <sighs> these victims are still paying taxes. So again, that's what I'm talking about. That citizen-slave hybrid, what's their status? You know, those American citizens who are in prison and those who are out of prison, but still not afforded the right to vote. Again, we're told... Although I know for a fact the Boston Massacre, which is cited as the <clears throat> reason for the American Revolution, was based on police brutality with British soldiers brutalizing a teenage colonists and, and uh, Crispus Attux getting together with some other colonists and saying, no, we can't tolerate this. We got to go confront these people. But the alternative history that we've been told, though, is that Oh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and all of them, they were fighting against taxation without representation. That was the battle cry. But yet, we still have American citizens today who are being taxed without representation. And you want to talk about some progress? Wow. And not only they're being taxed, they're being taxed on uh, monies that really don't exist. You're talking about a person who's making a dollar a day fighting forest fires, and they're paying taxes? No, I'm talking about those on the outside. Hmm? I'm talking about those on the outside, not in prison. Oh. Okay. Yeah, when they get a paycheck, it has all the deductions, just like everybody else who's never been to prison but yet they can't vote. That's taxation without representation. Somebody told me that's a reason for a revolution. Although, as you say, Max, slavery is that reason. Ending slavery is the reason for a revolution. If you're going to have a revolution, damn, what better idea? I mean, what are you going to re- revolt about other than freaking slavery? Well, let me read a little bit more from another article, Scotty, and that probably be the last one and then we'll go on to the take a break and go on to the next one so i just want to read this real quick within the last two minutes before i break uh this comes from the brennancenter.org and it says the united states stands alone among modern democracies in stripping voting rights from millions of citizens on the basis of criminal convictions across the country states impose varying felony disenfranchisement policies preventing an estimated 6.1 million Americans from casting ballots. Now, you'll notice throughout these uh, different articles, the number of people who are disenfranchised goes from 4 million, or one person, one group said 2 million, another one said 4 million, and this one says 6.1 million. It just shows you that there really are no records of just how many people can't vote. I would estimate it closer to 10 million. Now, to give a sense of... That sounds like a sizable army to me. Yeah, 10 million people. To give a sense of scope, this population is larger than the voting eligible populations of New Jersey. And as of this total, nearly 4.7 million are people living in our communities, working, paying taxes, like you just said, Scotty, and raising families, all while barred from joining their neighbors at the polls. I'm going to skip a little bit and go to the uh, end of this, where it says, it wasn't until the end of the Civil War and the expansion of suffrage to black men that felony disenfranchisement became a significant barrier to the U.S. ballot boxes. At that point, two interconnected trends combined to make disenfranchisement a major obstacle for newly enfranchised black voters. First, lawmakers, especially in the South, 
implemented a slew of criminal laws designed to target black citizens, and nearly simultaneously, many states enacted broad disenfranchisement laws that revoked voting rights from anyone convicted for any felony. These two trends laid the foundation for the form of mass disenfranchisement seen in the country today. And that's from the Brennan uh, Center, and they're an institute for justice. Now, Max, Max yes, before we go to break, let me just make a, a final comment because you're probably about to transition to something else. Now, yes. just think about all this information that we shared with you, all this taxation without representation, all this disenfranchisement and what millions of people max estimate up to 10 million people the low estimate is 2 million people now take that now take that information and apply it to that bs that donald trump was telling the u.n about the united states being you know this beacon of freedom and i'm paraphrasing what he said and democracy and all of this and that and it's nothing but bs it's nothing but BS. And we need, we need these other nations to call them out. And he got, he did get taken to task on that UN Security Council uh, stuff, but they need to listen to this program. And I suspect some of them have. I suspect that's why Venezuela uh, uh, is in their crosshairs because Venezuela doing that UN peer review pointed out that, hey, you're still practicing slavery. You didn't abolish slavery. And we need, we need the world to condemn the United States and call it out on its hypocrisy and its ill treatment of its own citizens. And I think uh, one of the countries did last night. Scotty, in perspective, there are more people disenfranchised from voting in this country than the entire population of more than a dozen countries total. Like, you know, Myanmar don't have as many people as we do have people disenfranchised. That's crazy, man. Upwards of 10 million. Well, we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we come back on the other side of this station identification break. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here with Max Parthas and Scotty Reed on the Black Talk Radio Network. And we'll be right back after these messages. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. And as was said during our commercial break, please support 
uh, Black Talk Radio Network and our social network. We're trying to build an institution for us, by us, and we need all the help that we can get. Uh, Scotty, I have something for our researchers. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you what it is, and you can find it on New Abolitionist Radio once Brother Otis Griffin puts it there. And it is a historical timeline of the U.S. history of felon voting and disenfranchisement. And they start from 1100 B.C. and go all the way up to 2016. So researchers that want to find out more about this, dig a little bit deeper, that tool is available to you on New Abolitionist Radio. Hey, um, Max. There was, yes, Scotty. Real quick. Um, Bolivian President Evo Morales told Donald Trump last night the United States could not care less about human rights or justice. I see what happened to them. Wow. Yeah, I think we've had about half a dozen different nations who have said the same thing. China put out an entire video series on modern-day slavery and racism in the United States. China put it out. But they call that propaganda, even if it's the truth. Right. It is propaganda, but it's the truth. There's different right. types of propaganda. Right. The truth is the best propaganda. That's what Russian TV says. The truth is the best propaganda. We're using it right here, right now. Here's something, Scotty, I want to add to this conversation about felony disenfranchisement laws. Something people may not know, but the very first state to do this was on April 19th in 1792, and it was Kentucky. The Kentucky Constitution was the first among U.S. states to establish criminal disenfranchisement. Kentucky state constitution is ratified. Its state laws shall be made to exclude from suffrage those who thereafter be convicted of bribery, perjury, forgery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Kentucky, the very first one. And, I, you know, I was like, okay, what was going on in Kentucky in 1792 that they would want to do some crap like this? Because, you know, you got to understand how slavery is play their game if you're going to fight it. You know what I mean? So I did some research, and here's what I found. The slavery of the Negroes began in inequity. A curse has attended it, and a curse will follow it. National vices will be punished with national calamities. David Rice to the Kentucky Constitutional Convention of 1792. Asa Earl Martin in the anti-slavery movement in Kentucky prior to 1850 said, apparently, no serious differences existed among the delegates except as to recognizing the existence of perpetuity of slavery. This question, which brought directly before the convention by the ninth article, which legalized slavery, after considerable discussion, the article was adopted. And while it was designed to make the institution as mild, this, see, this is reformist right here. This is what reformist from 1792. It was designed to make the institution as mild and as humane as possible. It nevertheless made it virtually perpetual unless there should be a change in the fundamental law. The legislature was denied power to pass laws for their emancipation of slaves without the consent of their owners, nor could it prevent immigrants from bringing in their slaves. On the other hand, the General Assembly was given extensive powers in respect to the importation of slaves into the state as merchandise. The contents of Article 9. This legislature shall have no power to pass laws 
for the emancipation of slaves without the consent of their owners previous to such emancipation and a full equivocal in money for the slaves so emancipated. They shall have no power to prevent immigrants to this state from bringing with them such persons as are deemed slaves by the law of any one of the United States. So long as any person of the same age or description shall be continued in slavery by the laws of this state. And it goes on quite a bit more. This is a law that was written in Kentucky to remove any chance of ending slavery ever. Wow. wow. Disenfranchisement laws. That's how they came into play. It's part of slavery. It's it's part of the whole process that they use in order to criminalize people, to disenfranchise the people, and to keep them in perpetual poverty with no say in government. Scotty? I don't have anything to add. Like I said, some of this stuff was pretty amazing, I found, man. Some of it was pretty amazing. I'd like to open up the phone lines. If anybody has any comments, anything you want to add to this uh, topic about felony disenfranchisement laws and its connection to modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Yeah, the uh, phone number is 704-802-5056, 704-802-5056. Hit star, star. Um, I also like to point out that it will be an amendment in Florida on the ballot that would restore immediately restore um, um, the voting rights of felons. So that's the reason to turn out. It's a damn good reason to turn out. I, I've always believed that once felons and uh, formerly incarcerated and pre-trial detainees sitting in jails had their full opportunity to exercise their voting rights, that politicians would begin to have to cater to the demands of people who are incarcerated because they are still citizens of this nation and they should have their demands listened to, especially when we're talking about human rights violations being swept under the carpet and treated as if they were little mistakes that we could fix over the next 50 years. Uh, again, uh, Scotty just gave out the number. If you have any questions or comments, now is a really good time uh, to add to the conversation. As always, this is a conversation. All right, then. Well, Scotty, unless you want to add anything uh, more to it, then I'll just go ahead into the next uh, segment. Um, go ahead to the next segment, Max. All right, no doubt. Well, this is something that caught my eye from a friend of mine, Robin, who shared it with me. And I, I, I don't know, maybe they'll come on and talk uh, with us about it. But it's in regard to uh, the city of Philadelphia, which was forced to abolish civil asset forfeiture and pay back victims for the millions of dollars that it stole from them. Now, this is something that didn't happen recently. I think it was a couple of years ago. I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. But I see it as an opportunity for us to do the same thing in other states and other cities all across the nation that are doing this exact same thing. So this first article came from the Free Thought Project. And, you know, I don't always use the Free Thought Project as my foremost piece of information, but they really had everything on point. Anyway, it says, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city that has gained a reputation for the egregious civil asset forfeiture practices committed by its police department will now be forced to dismantle the program altogether as a result of a lawsuit filed by a family who had their home seized by police 
after their son was accused of a minor drug crime. The city will no longer seek property forfeiture for simple drug possession. The city will stop seizing petty amounts of cash without accompanying arrest or evidence in a criminal case. The city will put judges in charge of forfeiture hearings and will streamline the hearing process. The city will ban the Philadelphia District Attorney and Philadelphia Police Department from using forfeiture revenue to fund their payroll. Wow, I got to say that again, because this is what they were doing, okay? If you're talking about a motive, this is it. The city will ban the Philadelphia District Attorney and Philadelphia Police Department from using forfeiture revenue to fund their payroll. The city will disperse the $3 million settlement fund to qualifying members of the class action lawsuit based on the circumstances of their case. That's pretty amazing, Scotty. Yes, yes. It, all it took was one family to make a lawsuit, and mm -hmm. it broke the whole damn system. That's, that's what I'm saying, man. Like I was talking about our previous segment, okay, we know the Supreme Court issued um, a ruling on allowing felony disenfranchisement, citing Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, but the 14th Amendment only talks about males, so we need some women to step up and file lawsuits. Yeah, we need all we can get right now. I mean, if you're affected by civil asset seizure laws, all you got to do is follow what this family did, and you could probably break the whole system in your city. You know, most of these major cities are doing this as a regular thing. And yes, let me yes. Talk about the size in the Federal state. government, too, though. Federal government, too. Federal government, too. Remember that that was what Sessions was just pushing recently. Yes, you know, yes. He wanted to stop then, but he said, no, we want even more money. Right, right. Here's the size and the scope of Philadelphia's civil forfeiture machine. In 2011 alone, Philadelphia filed 6,000 560 civil forfeiture petitions. By contrast, Allegheny County, the second largest county in Pennsylvania where Pittsburgh is located, filed roughly 200 civil forfeiture petitions from 2008 to 2011. Each year, the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, and I believe this is Krasner's office, isn't it, Scotty? Krasner's Larry Krasner. Say that, say that again. Say, uh -huh. read, read that part again. Uh, it says each year the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. Yes, that's Krasner. Larry Krasner, exactly. Mr. We're going to do something about mass incarceration. Each year the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office files civil forfeiture petitions against 300 to 500 homes. Oh, man. And of the real property. You're talking about one city, 500 homes every year? In 2010, Philadelphia filed more than 8,200 cash forfeiture cases worth an average of $550 each. A sample of more than 100 cases from 2011 to 12 reveals that the median amount of cash seized was only $178. Like, they are petty anteing you to death. The revenue what? Philadelphia civil forfeiture machine rakes in. From 2002 to 14, Philadelphia averaged $5.6 million a year in civil forfeiture revenue. Now, can you read... Can you read the part? Can you read the part about the seizure of homes again? Uh, yes. Let me pull it up here. Each year, every single year, the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office 
file civil forfeiture petitions against 300 to 500 homes and other real property. Now, they own 500 freaking properties a year. So, we I I think it could be safe although we shouldn't assume stuff, but I think it's safe to assume that this isn't just happening in Philadelphia and I also wonder um um how big a role it plays in the homelessness that we see in, in the United States in addition to other things. Yeah, there possibly could be a connection. What they do with these homes, to the best of my understanding, is they put them on the auction block and they liquidate them, and then they take that money and they buy $5,000 coffee pots. Do <laughs> you remember we were talking about that, where they bought a $5,000 coffee pot with L- the money Listen, they Max. <laughs> I was in the U.S. military, uh, my first duty station, the first six months um, until, because I was in communications, but I got sent to an aviation unit as my first duty station, and they really didn't have a, a, a communications department. I actually created it from scratch, but up until that point, um, I was working in the supply room. Um, you know, cause for the different part, man, I'm telling you, man, they were wasting so much money. I had access to like the, uh, um, I, it was on a computer It's in a computer database, but how they order the different stuff, man. So I'm sure people have heard the stories about how they overpay for everything. They're true. And I'm yeah. sure they do it with these other governments, and especially when they're using private contractors, no bid contracts, and you know, this is how they grease the the palms of their, um, you know, uh, campaign funders and what have you. In actuality, that is a form of money laundering. When you're buying five thousand yes, dollars, you know, that's money laundering because that money ain't paying for no toilet seat, it ain't paying for nothing, you know. But let me uh, finish off a little bit more of this money that's involved, because we're talking about like $100 million in Pennsylvania alone. Although Philadelphia's population is smaller, well, let me back up. From 2002 to 14, Philadelphia averaged $5.6 million in annual civil forfeiture revenue. Philadelphia's forfeiture machine raked in over $72 million from 2002 to 2014. By contrast, during that same time, all of Philadelphia's, or all of Pennsylvania's 66 other counties took in a $102 million combined. Although Philadelphia's population is smaller than Brooklyn, New York, and Los Angeles County, it brings in twice as much civil forfeiture revenue as those two combined. Wow. As much as Brooklyn, New York, and Los Angeles County combined. From 2002 to 14, Philadelphia seized and forfeited 1,248 homes and other real properties, 3,531 automobiles and other vehicles, and over $50 million in cash. So when I hear people, Max, talk about, oh, this is the best place to live in the world, I wouldn't live anywhere else, I'm going to chalk that up to ignorance. You just really don't know what goes on in this country, and you're a victim of the prop- the nationalistic propaganda. At least uh, three nations, like Canada, for instance, just two years ago issued warnings to their citizens to beware of United States police because the cops are robbers. 
and they were talking about the civil asset forfeiture that was going on. So you got three countries, including Canada, saying, watch out for these robbing cops that will jack you in the middle of the street. And they do that. It's gotten so bad that Wisconsin, for instance, has this system set up now where if they stop you for a traffic violation, you can pay right there and then and have to pay right there and then through uh, their computer systems, like right on the road. You're paying for this. Yeah, yeah, they had them card readers. If you got a credit card or something like that, you know, a banking card, they had them card readers. It's literally highway robbery. Uh, let me read a story, just a little bit of a story about one of the people that were affected by this. So if you think it's just all drug dealers from Colombia who are getting their billions of dollars stolen back, here is this story. Um, this is from Civil Forfeiture in Philadelphia, and it's verdictjustia.com from 2014. He appealed Pennsylvania. The Applegate Court observed offered no relevant evidence to the issue of who might have a superior claim to the seized cash. If not appellant, appellant it uh, concluded that the lower court seizure of Mr. Young's money is state-sanctioned theft. This is the court calling this state-sanctioned theft, because it is. Mr. Young eventually won, but the gears of justice moved slowly. It was not only until November of 1995, more than two years after police seized his money, that the court ordered it returned. Philadelphia has not really changed its ways since the Young case. In August of 2001, police pursued suspected drug dealers through the unlocked door of a 77-year-old homeowner, Margaret Davis. Davis typically left her door unlocked so her kind neighbors could check up on her. She suffered from end-stage renal disease and used paratransit to travel to dialysis treatment three times a week. Because the suspect ran out the back door of Mrs. Davis' home, the police asked for her permission to search her home. When they found drugs in plain view, presumably left by the fleeing suspects, the next month, the Philadelphia District Attorney filed a motion to seize her home, although no one accused her of being part of the drug ring. So the 77-year-old woman, you know, a couple of drug dealers selling some weed, probably $20, $30 worth of weed, drops it as, as they run running through her house, and they seized her home. I've read stories about um, church secretaries, you know, taking the deposits to deposit them, you know, had the money in the paper bag and got pulled over by a cop and they took that. I've read stories about people leaving the casino and being robbed of their winnings at the casino. Yeah. It, it, so if you just think that it's drug dealers, they're probably the least ones that's being affected. Yeah, and then they seem to target specific communities with this. I mean, the civil assets uh, seizure laws, basically, they just go to the same places that they've been criminalizing before, and now you can take everybody's stuff. Yeah. So, you know, see the guy on the corner selling weed, or if he's standing on somebody's property, you could probably seize the guy's property, not the drug dealer, but the person who was standing on his property, you know? Or, hey, hey, just sprinkle some crack in the back seat, and right. then you can take it, you know? I mean, when you set these types of situations up where the district attorney's office gets their payroll from how much property they seize, you know that's going to be exploited. And that's what's happening. The district attorney's payroll is based on these damn seizures. Yeah, and, and then, too, you know, following up on my crack comment, 
it don't even have to be real crack because they'll find the Annie Dukins to do the test and say it was real crack and it was uh, drywall. Here's the sad part about it, Scotty. There is no justice in this because you don't even have to be convicted of anything. They right, seize your property. Right. That's on a suspect. Right, you've been convicted of nothing. Right, so you don't get charged with anything, but you don't have a house no more, or a car right. no more, no money in the bank no more. And then you have to go to court with uh, spend a fortune on lawyers to try to prove that your property isn't guilty of anything. Clearly a violation of due process laws, or due process that's codified in the Constitution. But again, you know, they're probably going through a loophole. Yeah, it's always the loopholes, the other except and otherwise. <laughs> well, you know, my whole purpose in pointing out these two things and going so much into detail on them is to show how all of this is part and parcel of modern-day slavery and human trafficking. This is how they trap you. This is how they grab you. This is how they exploit you. These are the legal ways that they take advantage of you. It's no different than the sheriffs in Alabama that were making $750,000 uh, in monies, taking it from the food monies for the prisoners. It's the same thing. Right. And it was legal. And it's still legal. Uh, but I think Otis wants to chime in. What's up, Otis? Hey, good evening, gentlemen. I just wanted to bring it around. Remember, we went over, I think, one of the times I guest host, we talked about a town in Texas, Tahana, I believe it was, Texas, where the city manager and the, and the police officer were all in a a gang together hijacking people on I-10. And yes. I think I told you, I even had a run-in in Rockwell, Texas uh, one Sunday evening, and I had literally called into uh, uh, John Wally Price's uh, talk show on a community radio station and put the police on blast because they were going through my tools talk about confiscating it because I was traveling back to Virginia and had cash and stuff in a vehicle come telling me it was drug money and I literally I just bought a brand new Nokia phone and I literally called his radio station and was putting them on blast over the air. <laughs> so that this is this is all over the country. I got a, a friend of mine in Ohio that he went to visit a, a friend in a hospital in Vegas was driving him back to Arizona and they went through the same thing and they're two ex-Air Force guys, white guys. So this is going on all over this country and when you talk about the laws, actually, there's several states, and there have been several different uh, um, uh, bills proposed in Congress to make this illegal over about the last eight or nine years, and none of them have made it out of committee. And the, and the articles I've read over the last several days since she posted that article, because I went back over some of my bookmarks, they say the reason it's failed in several states and in Congress is by because of the power of the fraternal order of the police. They fight it. You're absolutely right about that story from Texas. As a matter of fact, I had done a video about it, and I'll share it at, at one point. Uh, I did a couple of videos about it. The one you're talking about is where the police and the city hall were conspiring with the local church and uh, laundering the money through the church. So they were making $10,000 donations to the church, $20,000 donations to the church, and then the people that ran the church would turn around and give cash back to them. And this was the city hall and the police department working in tandem with the church to steal money from people on the road. Is that right, uh, Otis? That's the one? 
I'm sorry. Yes, yes, Max. That, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I said that there's several stories like that. I mean, even uh, people going from their wedding, going to their, their uh, daughter's wedding and stuff in Texas, some in Arizona. They're all over. When I, when I started looking at them, like I said, it was just, I went through 20 or 25 of them that was just horrendous. People going to purchase a vehicle from another, from a private uh, uh, sale and money confiscated. And and not only that, the process that Scott is talking about, one of the things that I read about it says that they circumvent the court because they usually use some kind of uh, mediator that you, so you, you're not, don't actually go before the court and they string you out and giving you conditions and the paperwork and stuff that you have to supply to prove that your money is not illegal or your vehicle is not illegal. They'll string you out over a course of 18 to 24 months or longer. So by the time you uh, you fought their case, you spent more than they've taken. It's, it's, it's all a scam and it's all legal because it, it never gets to the court until you agree to either forfeit or give them a percentage of the money. Right. The woman that I talked about in the story, 77 years old, what they told her was that they would sell her property and give her 40% of the value of it. So they took it for nothing, said, we're going to sell it no matter what, and we're going to give you, you're not going to be asked, you're going to take 40% of the sale value. And a sale on auction ain't worth crap. That's crazy, Scotty. And uh, Otis, I, I did a link in the chat room. It's the last one in the chat room there. And I think this would be a great way to close it out because you brought up the story and people maybe not understand how bad this is. We've exposed it before. A couple of years ago, we did an expose on these tiny courts all across America where you have judges that are former rat catchers who are holding court in their garages, on their front lawn, in the school auditorium. This is what they're doing. Judges who are not qualified, magistrates, with racist, uh, you know, ideologies running through their mind are out here robbing people using the police department through these civil asset forfeiture cases and the fines and fees. So if you want to do a Google on tiny courts, you'll be surprised at what you find. Scotty, the, the video on there, if you can cue that up, let's just, before we do our final segments, just let's listen to this and then we'll go into our final segments. Okay, let, let's take our uh, station break and then come right into that. Awesome. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on blacktalkradionetwork.com. We'll be right back after these messages and this video. Talk Radio, your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Stunning allegations of highway robbery in a small Texas town. Dozens of drivers claim they have been held up for cash and cars and jewelry. Now they say it's happening here in Tenaha, Texas, just east of the Louisiana state line. Now even more shocking is who some victims are blaming. Not, ro not robbers or bandits or drifters. They say it's police. Police who they say are no better than common criminals. Now, the police deny the accusations against them. 
Gary Tuckman tonight is keeping them honest. We've heard the same story over and over. Drivers telling us this small stretch of Texas highway was a trap, a systematic ambush. Amani Busby of Maryland was forced off the road here. They took everything out of the car. They took all of us out of the car. Jennifer Boatwright and Ronald Henderson were driving through with their two kids. They tell us they had $6,000 with them to buy a car when they were stopped. He was already going through the glove box and he had, he got Ron's money. Roderick Daniels was coming through from Tennessee. He says he had $8,500 in cash also to buy a car. They took all of it. It makes me feel sad, not more than angry. I feel like, man, there's no, no justice even with the law. Over the last two years, scores of drivers, virtually all of them African-Americans or Latinos, say they couldn't report these crimes to the police. Because the men who forced them to pull over, the men who took so much from them, are the police. Roderick Daniels' journey took him here, to the tiny town of Tenaha, Texas. Population about 1,000. On this portion of US 59, the posted speed limit is 35 miles per hour. Daniels says police pulled him over for going 37 in the 35. Police asked Daniels if he had money, and he says he told them he had the cash to pay for that new car. They said they would charge me with money laundering. I, I actually thought that this was a joke. I'm like, money laundering? It's just, it sounds so dramatic. Two cops brought him to jail. He was frightened, had no idea what he'd done wrong, but was told no charges would be brought if he left behind his cash and jewelry. To be honest, I was five, six hundred miles away from home. I was very petrified. So he agreed to the deal. Roderick Daniels was released from this Texas jail without his money, without his jewelry, without the car he wanted to buy, and without any hope he would see his valuables again. But now he realizes he's not alone. Jennifer and Ronald were also offered a deal, this one in writing, and the district attorney signed it herself. It's a form letter, a kind of get-out-of-jail card that says, in exchange for forfeiting their $6,000, no criminal charges shall be filed, and our children shall not be turned over to Child Protective Services. The cops terrified their son, Jonathan. So what did he say about your parents to you? That they were going to be taken away. Me and Jacob would be put in CPS or foster care. His mom says the DA showed up at the police station, berated her as a bad parent, and also threatened to separate the family. I said, if it's the money you want, you can have it. You can have it. If, if that's what it takes to keep my children with me and not separate them from us, take the money. Amani Busby was with her young child. The first police officer who pulled us over would say things to me like, um, your son's going to Child Protective Services. He's going. He's going. Um... You're not saying what we want you, what we want to hear. So what's going on here? This attorney has filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of 150 drivers who were stopped at Highway 59. There's disproportionately going after racial minorities. And my take on the matter is that uh, the police in Tenaha, Texas, were picking on and preying upon people that were least likely to fight back. The cops in the county took their money, and yet none of them was ever charged criminally. I believe it's a shakedown. I believe it's a piracy operation. Records show this town and county have made a lot of money doing this. Under Texas law, police, in fact, are allowed to confiscate money and other property if it's believed to be used in a crime. But if the person is not charged or is found not guilty, the valuables must be returned. The lawsuit claims Tenaha and Shelby County often keep the money, no matter what. I was uh, angry. This Texas state senator is leading the fight to reform forfeiture laws. Partly because he's shocked at what he's heard about in Tenaha. To have law enforcement and a district attorney 
in the criminal justice system essentially be crooks, in my judgment. Uh, it should infuriate and does infuriate everyone. The town has made many forfeiture arrests of people who really have been guilty of crimes. But when you include the alleged fraudulent arrests, roughly how much money is the tiny town taken in? The attorney has done some math. The amount is close to $3 million. $3 million! So what are they doing with that money? We found a $10,000 check from the DA directly to this man, the cop, who pulled over most of these drivers. We had questions for him. We're doing a story about this guy, Roderick Daniels. He was pulled over here by you a year and a half ago, and you took his money and his jewelry. Do you recognize him? I cannot uh, comment. And we had questions for the DA. After avoiding us, we finally located her. I'm surprised to find her on center stage. Many of the drivers pulled over on Highway 59 tell us they are guilty of one thing and one thing only, driving while black or Latino. So we didn't expect the cop who many are complaining about to be this man. His name is Barry Washington. It seems like you guys pull a lot of people over, though, and take their money and take their belongings more than I've seen in any town before. What's your response to that? I cannot make a comment. This is on litigation. This is a, a lawsuit. Well, I appreciate your, yes, your courtesy to me, but yes, that's the story that we're doing, that it just seems like there's a propensity to do that. I don't have anything to say to you right now. Okay. I mean, I've told you that twice. Okay. Well, if I could just ask you one final question. Yes, yes. have a safe trip. Have, have a good day. The district attorney wasn't as easy to find. We made repeat visits to her office. We came here yesterday and we asked if she'd be in today and we were told she would be in today. I thought she was going to be, but she's not. That's all I can tell you. But you can't tell me if she's on vacation or just not wanting to talk to us. That's what she's doing. Well, it is her business because the taxpayers pay her salary. So it really is her. It really is the public's business. So, yeah. Ultimately, they told us she would have no comment. So we looked elsewhere for DA Linda Russell. And we found her on stage belting out country tunes at a fire department fundraiser. We couldn't get near her until the event was over. Miss Russell? Yeah, guys. Miss Russell? She doesn't care to speak yeah. to anybody. Miss Russell, my name is Gary, talking with CNN. She doesn't have anything. I want to have, I need to ask her. Miss Russell, I just want to see if you want, I just want to see. I want to talk to you. But we kept trying because we'd found out even more about her that raised serious questions. Texas law states that when money and valuables are legally taken from motorists charged with crimes, it can only be used for the official purposes of the DA's office and for law enforcement purposes for police. We acquired copies of hundreds of checks the district attorney wrote over the last two years. The entire account funded only with money the cops took from drivers they stopped on the highway. Official purposes? The documents show the DA has given herself wide discretion in how she spends the forfeiture money. Here's a check and receipt for a popcorn machine at Popcorn costing $524. Here's another one, $195 for a poultry festival. She bought Tootsie Pops, Dum Dums, and Double Bubble for the event. Here's one, 400 bucks for catering from Pete and Jennifer's barbecue. More records show she made donations to clubs and organizations she seems to like, including the local Chamber of Commerce, youth baseball, good causes, but official business? According to the check registry from the District Attorney's Forfeiture Fund, at least two checks totaling $6,000 were given to this Baptist church in Tenaha. But this one, this check really stands out. This is the check the DA wrote for $10,000 and paid directly to police officer Barry Washington for what are described as investigative costs. So we wanted to give the DA a chance to explain why would she write such a huge check directly to a cop 
and why it seems the cops are targeting so many minority drivers. She doesn't want to speak to you guys. Sir, I'm not asking you. If she doesn't want to comment, she can tell me. She, she, she She's the district attorney. Even, she doesn't even want to speak to you. I, know she, I need to give her the opportunity. That's my job to get both sides of the she story. Has, she knows that she has the opportunity. She doesn't care to speak to you. The DA's personal attorneys did give CNN a general statement. Ms. Russell has denied and continues to deny all substantive allegations set forth. She has used and continues to use prosecutorial discretion and is in compliance with Texas law, the Texas Constitution, and the United States Constitution. George Bowers has been mayor here for 54 years. The class action suit also names him. We try to hire the very best trained. They have all the training, and we keep them up to date on the training, you know, where they, where they will follow the law. You know. So you have faith that they've done the right That's thing? That's right. All the defendants in the lawsuit deny the allegations and say they followed the law. The Hendersons and Amani Busby spent a lot of money on attorneys and eventually got their seized cash back. But Roderick Daniels, like scores of others who has been charged with nothing, is still out the $8,500 the cops took from him. For a husband and father of four, it's a lot to lose. To this day, didn't understand why, why did they take my belongings off me. Maybe he'll find out someday. From the cop... This is our litigation. Yeah. We'll just have to see what happens in the courthouse. Or from the country singer... Whose day job may be getting her in big trouble. Well, there you have it, Scotty. Slave catchers. Exactly yeah. that. M money laundering, targeting blacks and Hispanics. Even had a black cop. The first guy they said, you know, you've been taking all this money from people and stop. That was a black cop that he was talking to. Yeah, the one he said that was um, tar doing the most targeting was a black cop. Um, so, targeting yeah. black people. Yeah. So, um, you know, I this this video was posted three years ago, and so um, I haven't heard anything. Have y'all heard anything? What about criminal charges? Because it seemed like uh, RICO would apply here. Uh, yes, and uh, Otis just put in a link about a person out in Texas that's fighting Trump on civil asset forfeiture. But I had heard of no uh, furthering of this investigation, which was head, uh, headed by CNN. I heard of no criminal uh, charges against the county or the people. And to the best of my knowledge, they are still doing exactly what they were doing then now. Um, Otis, do you have any information? Was this woman ever criminally charged by Loretta Lynch, the department, federal? I mean, these are RICO charges. This is what... Oh, what I was going to tell you, I did post in there because the latest I found on follow-up from that case, the one you just posted, you played was from 2013. But in 2017, the post that I just made is a Texas law, law person who actually went to meet Trump in 2017 about this same issue because Texas is one of the states I told you the FOP had been blocking any progress on it. And what she brought up was that that little town of, of Tanaha had actually taken over $3 million from mostly black and Latino drivers in the time period over about a three or four year period. Another Ferguson. ACLU settled a class action lawsuit against them. And it doesn't say what the outcome is. I was going to try to research that later. But this lady actually got it's a four minute video. I posted it also in, in the chat, but I'll put it on New Abolitionist. She actually got into a spat with Trump over it because 
Trump at the sheriff's convention made, said that he was going to make it a point to uh, railroad the career of the original Texas lawmaker who was trying to overturn asset forfeiture. Mm. So that, that shows you where we stand with this. Trump is all pro-police and so is Jeff Sessions. So this this is a battle that I, I've been trying to get people to wake up to it, you know, talking people that I know here in my real life outside of the electronic so, world. And people don't, they don't get it. But I told I, I've told them in driving back and forth from Texas for about 13 years when I lived out in Dallas, I ran into it all the time. I mean, literally, I got to the point that my tools and stuff with receipts, I kept them in a quart-sized freezer bag to show where I paid for these tools because I do home repair. And I mean saws and stuff like that. They literally tell me it looks like I'm trafficking in stolen goods and all this mess. So I literally kept receipts for everything. So what I'm what I'm not hearing that this woman and this cop was prosecuted. I mean, even outside of a federal RICO, which was successfully used against some uh, bail bonding companies and and what have you, but even embezzlement. You writing him, you know, the you you you're buying all of this stuff. You're buying candy. You're buying barbecue. You're writing this cop ten thousand dollars for what? Investigative costs. What? Wait a minute. What? What? This is embezzlement. Scotty, the only thing I can tell you is is uh, with this idea of qualified immunity when it comes to killing, to me. Is qualified immunity for any actions of law officers because nine times out of ten, if the ACLU settle, they settle without prosecuting anybody. That's just the well, way the ACLU it goes in can't this prosecute anybody, but well, I, yeah, my thing they, is they, they can refer it. They agree not to. Yeah, they can yeah, they, refer yeah, right. it to the U.S. Attorney, but I'm saying the ACLU shouldn't even need need it need to. Hey. Exactly. But the, well, then, then you're going back to something I said. That's all of this happened when we had two black uh, DO attorney general. That's all of these are under Holder and, and Lynch. And they right. did nothing. But it would be so, up so, to, you know, the buck, those, they were in charge of the Department of Justice, but it would directly fall under the U.S. attorney for that district. I wonder if anybody yeah, that, ever filed a complaint. Is that, that they don't move without without some some kind of push from the head. What do they tell you? The organization is only good as the people that are running it. Right. So uh, they're not going to. You know, nothing nothing gets done. I, I can't even let them off the hook. I've been after Holder on Twitter every time he posts something about running because I told him you were the most ineffective person we ever had in charge of something talking about the upholding the law. So you, anybody that's dumb enough to vote for you in a political office deserves exactly what they get. And I figured he'd just be another black Trump. He went to Ferguson and declared that there were rampant constitutional violations and his reply was a list of suggestions. <laughs> like, you just said that is a constitutional violation happened rampantly that uh, actually RICO, because it is racketeering with the city hall, the police department working together to increase the city's funds by $3 million, and the only thing you got to offer is a list of suggestions. But anyway, man, we need to get on to the last part of this program. So, uh, as always, time is so short. Thanks, Otis, as always, brother. 
Look, I'll just say quickly, all of that done under the, quote, color of law. Always. And it's all, con this is a Fourth Amendment uh, violation of the highest degree. Rampant Fourth Amendment violation. And that's the law of the land. But nothing is going to happen because of a constitutional violation. But RICO charges, on the other hand, can be very effective. And we've seen them be very effective. Well, here's a, let me go through the speed stories because you know we missed a month of stuff just doing those interviews uh over the past month uh so i got man so far behind so let me do a speed run of the headlines a sheriff out in new jersey was caught on tape making racist remarks and now people are asking for him to resign wow you got to ask for him to resign you should be inspecting his entire history because if he's a freaking racist he's been doing racist things and focusing like we just mentioned on black and brown bodies also, there were eight prisoners who were released, and 263 cases are right now under review in Florida after a deputy uh, was found planting drugs on people. So again, now you got people who never did anything, but here they are in jails and prisons or in debt because of these crook crooked slave catchers. <coughs> then the white supremacists who, <coughs> excuse me, guys. All right, I'm back. Sorry about that. The white supremacist who slaughtered a man with a sword out in uh, New York who came from Baltimore, he had to reenact that during a court case and basically said that he was just practicing on that guy. And he didn't think nobody would care because it was a homeless black guy. And that really represents a lot of the sentiment across America. Who cares? You're just a homeless black guy. Uh, two officers got shot because they went into the wrong address to serve a warrant. So that's the opposite of the recent events that we've heard of. And then uh, the next one is a Tulare County Sheriff in Woodland uh, Lakes. He was uh, found to be committing rapes and sexual assaults while in uniform. You can find all these stories on our planning page. Uh, some good news, Seattle just threw out 15 years of marijuana convictions, and uh, they uh, you know, are doing the right thing. Why should people be in prison or in debt or in jail or have a conviction because of marijuana when it's freaking legal? And uh, then... We t I think Scotty talked about this last night on his uh, radio program, but marijuana arrests are increasing despite legalization. That's some new FBI data that just came out. Now, how is that even possible? But well, we know uh, last year over 700,000 people were arrested for simple possession. See, this is the criminalization of a culture and a people and a class. That's how they do it. And then uh, last few is Facebook recently warned the Memphis police no more fake Bob Smith accounts. Apparently Memphis, and I am not thinking it's just Memphis, police are making fake accounts to uh, get into people's circles and, you know, do what cops do. Then what, here's what, the next on one. On social media? Uh, say, say again, Scott? On Scott? social media? Yes, social media. Facebook warned them. Uh, no more fake cop uh, cops using fake accounts. Uh, they are stopping that. Kudos to Facebook. And uh, last one, a police chief pleads guilty to framing innocent blacks in Biscayne Park. Guilty to framing innocent people. This is what we're dealing with, with these slave catchers all over the place. And, uh, you know, out in Alabama, when we were talking about those slave catchers who were using the food funds from the jails to, uh, you know, make a fortune, well, they just swore oaths to not misuse state jail food anymore. Uh, so that, <laughs> that ain't worth the paper it's printed on. The law needs to be changed. 
You're talking about $700,000 worth of food going to prisoners. They're going to be eating caviar, huh? <laughs> you know that ain't going to change. They are lying through their teeth. All right, Scotty, that covers it for our news of the day. Uh, either of the uh, last yeah. segments do you want to take? Yeah, I got uh, the abolitionists in profile up. Okay, both of them are a little long, so just feel free to shorten it as you see fit. Okay, so, uh, it's not it's not that long. I get through it quickly. Um, awesome. William Lloyd Garrison and the Liberator. Every movement needs a voice. For the entire generation of people that grew up in the years that led to the Civil War, William Lloyd Garrison was the voice of abolitionism. Originally a supporter of colonization, Garrison changed his position and became the leader of the emerging anti-slavery movement. His publication, The Liberator, reached thousands of individuals worldwide. His ceaseless, uncompromising position on the moral outrage that was slavery made him loved and hated by many Americans. In 1831, Garrison published the first edition of The Liberator, his words, I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch and I will be heard. Clarify the position of the new abolitionists. Garrison was not interested in compromise. He founded the New England Anti-Slavery Society the following year. In 1833, he met with delegates from around the nation to form the American Anti-Slavery Society. Garrison saw his cause as worldwide. With the aid of his supporters, he traveled overseas to garner support from Europeans. He was indeed a global crusader, but Garrison needed a lot of help. The Liberator would not have been successful had it not been for the free black who subscribed. Approximately 75% of the readers were free African Americans. Garrison saw moral persuasion as the only means to end slavery. To him, the task was simple. Show people how immoral slavery was and they would join in the campaign to end it. His disdain his disdain politics for he saw he disdained politics for he saw the political world as an arena of compromise. A group split from Garrison in the eighteen forties to run candidates for president on the Liberty Party ticket. Garrison was not dismayed. Once in Boston, he was dragged through the streets and nearly killed. A bounty of four thousand was placed on his head. In eighteen fifty four he publicly burned a copy of the Constitution because it permitted slavery and it still does. He called for the hey man. He just gave me an idea. Let's have a constitutional burning, man. He called for the North to succeed from the Union to sever the ties with the slaveholding South. William Lloyd Garrison lived long enough to see the Union come apart under the weight of slavery. He survived to see Abraham Lincoln issue the Emancipation Proclamation during the Civil War. 34 years after publishing the Liberator, Garrison saw the 13th Amendment to the Constitution go into effect, banning slavery forever. Um, it took a lifetime of work, but in the end, the m- morality of his position held sway. So ushistory.org needs to amend this article because uh, the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute William Lloyd Garrison. Salute, man. You know, I, I mirror his sentiments about this. And I, I kind of feel the same hope that he had in the moral abilities of the population who wrote the Constitution, that if you just appeal to them and show them how immoral and unjust and criminal this is, that eventually they will do something. And we see that happening now, even if it does get twisted in different directions. Uh, speaking of twisted in different directions, Scotty, we're going to have to have an off-air conversation about something that we may be bringing up in the next program. So uh, holler at me when you get some free time. 
and we're going to talk about uh, what we, you and I have been witnessing for the past few days. But let me get into our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad today. It is Valentino Dixon. Mr. Dixon, 48, had maintained his innocence during 27 years behind bars for a shooting in Buffalo, New York. He walked free this month after another man formally confessed to the murder. Mr. Dixon was handed a minimum 38-year-to-life sentence for killing 17-year-old Toriana Jackson one night in August 1991 after an argument over a girl. He acknowledged being at the scene, but said he was at a nearby shop buying beer when the gunshots rang out. Mr. Dixon said multiple witnesses could have testified he did not fire the gun, but his trial lawyer did not call any of them, as several had been accused of perjury. Unusually, the investigating homicide detective did not testify during the trial either. But a more serious flaw in the case was uncovered by Georgetown University's Prison and Justice Initiative. Prosecutors had omitted to reveal to Mr. Dixon's defense attorney that a gunpowder test on his client's clothes had come back negative. The real killer, perhaps even more egregiously, another man, Lamar Scott, admitted to local media only days after the murder that he shot Toriano Jackson. Wow. According to the, but he was never arrested. The victim's brother said he saw Mr. Dixon open fire. According to the Buffalo News, prosecutors conceded that Scott had been admitting his guilt in the case for a long time. Mr. Scott had been confessing to this crime since 12 August 1991, Assistant District Attorney Sarah D. told the court. He had confessed to this crime in excess of 10 times. Lamar Scott, who is currently in jail for a separate attack, finally had the chance to formally confess, confess to the crime on Wednesday. Hours later, Mr. Dixon was released. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio would like to say welcome to freedom, Mr. Dixon. Welcome to freedom. Man, you know, I say that always hesitantly because I know that once you get out after they wrongly imprisoned you, usually you still end up broke and you end up poor and you end up in poverty and you end up able to get a job and no support and you know we see PTSD yeah PTSD and you never know what happened to them when they were in there again men are the most raped um, uh, gender in this country because of prison amen Scotty well that comes to our our final comments and we have to keep it very brief because you only got a couple minutes so, uh, anything you want to close with, Scott? Yeah, I, I just wanted to thank you for uh, the subject matter that you uh, brought to our attention tonight. I missed, I've read the 14th Amendment, but I missed those loopholes. And, you know, that's why sometimes, you know, you should go back and read stuff over and over again more than once because you might miss something. So, thank you, Max. Uh, I appreciate that, Scotty. Thank you very much. Uh, You're certainly welcome. And everybody listening, you know, I like to to learn out loud because I don't know it all. And uh, while learning out loud, everybody gets to know something. You know what I mean? We all learn together. So here's my closing statements. Abolition, you know, slavery abolition, is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace, y'all. Rise up, 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 rise up
Let your wise rise up. See the signs of the times. If it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snow. 